What we've been doing last week, this week, and then again next week, uh, Tim has asked me to speak on the issue of stewardship. And it, it kind of interests me when you read the scriptures that the Bible will use a whole variety of pictures and images to talk about us and our relationship with God. Probably my favorite is child, son of God. You know, and I, I just love to go into the scriptures and see everything it says about being a child of God. There's so much. It's rich. But God also speaks about us as being stewards because he wants to look at the responsibility we have to him as his children. So there's all these rich metaphors and stewardship is the one we want to pick up again on again today. Um, I don't know if you heard this story. It's an interesting one. Probably not even true, but story nonetheless. This guy apparently was stranded on a desert island. And um, after he had gotten there, he realized there was a whole tribe on the other side of the island. And so when he went over there, they made him king. I mean, he, he was like, he was the guy. He thought, this is a pretty good deal. But as the year was going on, he realized that they had a really interesting custom. When they found somebody new, they made him or her king or queen for a year. But at the end of the year, they would take them to another isolated island. They'd be there by themselves and many times just die. So all of a sudden he's thinking to himself, maybe this isn't so good after all. And he came up with an idea. So look, if I'm going to be there in a year from now, I'm going to get ready for it now. So he started transporting certain individuals from that island over there that he liked. He had them build him a home. Uh, fields, crops, the whole thing. So at the end of the year, when he actually went there, it wasn't so bad. He was ready. We have a whole series of stories like that in the scriptures and, and just in our traditions about prepare now for tomorrow, for that rainy day. Every time I go to the bank, you know, they have that screen there and I'm making a deposit and they'll look up and they'll say, prepare for retirement now. Prepare for college. It's too late now. I already blew that one. But, you know, you know it's, it's always about preparing for now, now for what's coming in the future. Jesus will say something very, very similar in Luke chapter 16. But his future is a little bit different than the bank's future, isn't it? I mean, the bank is looking at this life. Jesus is going to look at the life to come as he compares it. So come with me, if you would, in your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 16. And, and I have to tell you, um, this is a really interesting passage because as I'm reading through this story, there's going to be some things, if you're like me, when I read through this story, I had some of these, like, what about questions? Like, first of all, why would Jesus even talk about this person in somewhat of a favorable way? And you'll see that as we work through it. So we'll get to those answers as we wrestle through. But, but, but I want you to, it, it's really, really, really important to me that we kind of understand how chapter 16 connects to the ministry of Christ more broadly. Really important. Look how Luke 16 begins. The Bible says, He also said to his disciples. Now, now that's, that's really, really important because in many ways you've got to put at least Luke 15 and Luke 16 together. So he was also saying to his disciples in the context of Luke 15. And here's what happens. We were singing this song. I love the song, Joy to the World beginning today it's a great song joy to the world the lord is come let earth receive her king did they some did right 
And to them, he gave the power to become the sons of God. We love it, John 1. But many didn't. And when you read Luke 15 and Luke 16, the people that bubble up again and again as those that don't receive the king are the Pharisees, the religious leaders. I mean, the last people in the world, right? I mean, like religious people. And both in 15 and 16, they're, they're kind of in the background, but they always then they come to center stage, and they're stepping up, and they're saying basically like, what is this Jesus person doing? We don't like it. It doesn't work with the way we do things. So in Luke 15, Jesus is hanging out with the sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, you know, the, the, the people on the periphery of the culture, and they can't figure it out because you're not supposed to hang out with people like that. He was hanging out with them because he loved them. And they were listening to his words, weren't they? And the Pharisees in chapter 15 gather around and they're grumbling and mumbling, saying, what is he doing here? Like, what is this all about? And Jesus unpacks through those three beautiful stories that he loves sinners. And the prodigal son, the last of the three stories, when that boy comes home to his father, the father wraps his arm around that boy and says, man, we are going to have a party because heaven rejoices when sinners repent. But the religious leaders could not figure that one out. And we learn from Luke 15. What Paul will say in, 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 in Ephesians chapter 2, we are saved by grace through faith alone, aren't we? There's nothing that boy could have done to earn anything from his father. He came back to him with nothing but a repentant heart. And God brought him into the family of God. We love it, right? You're saved. So Christianity costs you nothing. Religious leaders couldn't quite figure that one out. Because they think they had to do it. But Christianity will cost you cost you nothing. It's all His grace. And like I told you last week, Christianity will cost you everything. Not in the sense that you can pay for your eternity. No, not that way. But in the sense that it will change your life. And when we come to chapter 16, Jesus is going to focus more there. The kind of change he brings in as we become stewards of God and what that looks like. And again, the Pharisees in chapter 16 are on the periphery and they're looking in and because their hearts haven't been transformed from the inside out, they can't understand what's going on here and they're going to laugh at Jesus halfway through the chapter. That's kind of the way it works. But in the midst of all that, he explains us. People who have been saved by grace can bring nothing to that experience, but who are transformed and live different lives. So what does he say? Look at this story. Here in chapter um, 16, verses 1 to 8, he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, or perhaps your translation says steward, same thing who had a manager or a steward, and, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting or squandering his possessions. It's the same word that's used in Luke 15 for the, for the young man that squanders his possessions. Same idea. Okay. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. Now, in the ancient world, Galilee, for instance, wasn't all unusual if, if I was like a really wealthy individual. What I would do is I would have all this land throughout Galilee that I owned, but I couldn't be there. I was in Judea doing my own thing. 
but I would appoint a manager. And his job was to live in that area, and he was to control all my assets, make sure I was making money, the whole deal. That was, that he, was, he was my manager. And if I didn't like him, you know, there's no business ethics or anything. I'd get rid of him. I mean, that's just the way it works in the ancient world. Well, this guy wasn't doing so well. At best, he was incompetent. At worst, he was excessive in stealing funds. Probably more the first than the second. But what happens is this, uh, this, this, this rich man hears about the fact that your manager, your steward of this land, he's just not doing a very good job. And the guy gets panic-stricken, rightly so. Because he thinks to himself, man, I'm, 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 I'm caught. Because when I show him the books, there ain't no way he's going to keep me. I am done, finished. So he panics, but in his panic, he comes up with a solution. Look what the text says. Verse 3. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. And he's thinking about some of his business options. And he's saying, now let me think here for a second. I'm not a real strong fellow, so if I have to do manual labor, I'm not going to be able to make it. I guess I could beg, but... I don't know, that's a shameful thing to do. I was a manager at one point, for heaven's sakes. What am I going to do? I mean, I, I, like, I'm going to be all alone. I'm going to have nothing. Comes up with a really intriguing plan. I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from the management, people may receive me into their homes. He says, you know, what i got to do, i got to endear myself to somebody. You know? And, and if I do this thing right, when I'm out of a job, at least they'll take me into their house and they'll give me hospitality. At least. Maybe even a job of some sort. Because they'll like me or something. So, look at what he does. And this is, you know, some terrible ethics here. But nonetheless, look at what, he sa- what it says. I have decided what to do. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first... Um, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil, or to put that into kind of uh, our terminology, about 800 gallons of olive oil. All right? And in their day, that probably would have been a yield from about 150 trees. Not that you care, but that's about what it is. But it would have been worth in their day, you know, we talk of dollars, they would often talk of denarii. And it would be worth about a thousand denarii if you were a normal laborer, you would make almost 300 a year. So this is what? Three and a half years, roughly, of labor. So, so it's a lot of money. So, so it's a, a, a 800 gallons of olive oil. And he looks at the guy and says, you know what? I'm going to drop that thing in half. I'm going to take 500 denarii away from that thing. So you don't owe 1,000 anymore. You're only going to owe 500. So look at what he says in the text. So he says, I owe 100 measure of oil. He said to him, take your bill. Sit down quickly and write 50. Wouldn't you love it if, you know, I, I have Pico for my electric. I know you guys don't. I don't know what you have here. New Jersey, whatever. You know, power line or whatever. Can you imagine if they wrote you and said, hey, by the way, we just thought uh, maybe you only have to pay half this, this time around. <laughs> cool. You know, you'd love that, right? Yeah. Well, See, this guy still had authority. He was still the manager, so he could do this. So he called the guy and said, I'm going to drop 500, 50% off of that thing. Here's the bill. Sign it. You better believe I'll sign it. Yeah, okay, got it. All right. Then he said to another, 
How much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat, which would be about a thousand bushels of wheat, which would be worth about 2,500 denarii. So what's that, about eight years worth of work? And he's also going to drop this thing by about 500 denarii, 20% of what he actually owed. He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So he dropped him 20%. I could live with that. I mean, 50%, I love 50%, but I'd be very happy with 20% too, right? So he writes up both of these things. Now, how would you respond to that if you were the rich man, the master? I'd be ticked. I mean, look, this guy has squandered my stuff, right? He's been, he's been a lousy steward, and now he takes it upon himself to cut everybody a break. I'd be really ticked. But it does interest me what the text says. I mean, look, 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 beginning verse 8. The master commended the dishonest or the unrighteous manager, because everything he's been doing is unrighteous. He commended the unrighteous manager for his wisdom or for his shrewdness. Now, that's all Jesus tells us. My guess is the manager, I mean, the master thought of a lot of other things also. But Jesus just highlights, you know what? The master was able to look at this whole scenario and say, you can say what you want about Zechariah. But he made a smart financial decision that would benefit him in the future. I mean, that's all. I mean, I think he said other things. But that's all he says here in this text, right? Okay. Now, scholars have struggled with this because Jesus is going to use this guy as an example for how we should live. And so you look at that and you say to yourself, like, Jesus, what are you doing here? You know what I mean? Hey, and, 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 and so some scholars would come along and say, well, the money he dropped, you know, the 500 denarii for each of these, what that probably was was the interest that the master was charging the people. And according to the law in Deuteronomy, you could do that anyway. So he was just eliminating the interest. Or maybe... Maybe it was the commission that the manager was getting and he was dropping that to make them happy toward him. The only problem with those things is that's really high for commission or for interest. It's really, really high. You know what I think is happening in the text? I think the guy is ripping off his master. I do. I mean, I, I think it's the only way to read the text. And so you say, say to yourself, then why would Jesus use him as a model for us? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Ah, look at what the text says. Notice. Jesus now makes this comment in verse 8b. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Do you remember two chapters from this. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about the importance of prayer. And, and, and telling his people, look, you can come to me and you can pray and you can keep coming back and praying to me and I love you and I hear you and I will minister to you. You know, that, it's that whole passage. But he uses a really interesting comparison. He talks about the fact that there's, there's this unrighteous, wicked judge 
And this widow keeps coming to him and says, look, you've got to take care of me. You're not doing justice for me. I'm being ripped off. And she comes back again and again and again and again. And finally, the guy gets so tired of her. He could care less about her. He says, all right, woman, take it, man. You can have whatever you want. I've had it with you. And Jesus says, if an unrighteous, wicked judge will finally listen to a woman who he doesn't even care about, how much more will your father who loves you minister to your needs? You, you, you see, so he uses an example that we would say, oh, that's not like a lousy example. Uh-uh. It's not because of what it's being contrasted with. And that's the exact same thing that's going on here in Luke chapter 16. Jesus is saying, look, you can take sons of this world, people that know nothing of saving grace of Jesus Christ, and in a moment of crisis, they actually make a shrewd decision. Now, it was a dishonest, it was ripping off the master, all true. But at least he finally used money in a way that was appropriate based on the future. That's about it. But he did that, right? And what his point is, how much more should we as sons of the light, people who know God, people who love God, how much more should we take possessions and money and things and use them in a way that honors Him because of the way it will affect our future? D do you see? Do you see why He's using the comparison? I think it's exactly what He's doing in this text. I have to tell you, having said all that, this is, many scholars will tell you this is the hardest parable in Luke's Gospel to figure out for a variety of reasons. One of them is like, what in the world does this thing mean so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Like, what is that all about? You know what I mean? Um, and once again, there's all kinds of different views on it. I, I, I'll just kind of cut to the chase and tell you what I think is happening. It, it, you know, there, there's a song out there that's been written, and, and I understand, I really appreciate it, and I think there's truth to it. You know, thank you for giving to the Lord. Have you heard that song? Yeah. And I, nice song, and I think I think I think it's I think it's probably true. You know, you're gonna get to heaven. Hey, thank you. You don't know when you did this, and yeah, I think it's that's probably all true. And and maybe he even got it from this passage. I don't even know where where he got the song from. Maybe, maybe he was thinking about this passage. But I think what's happening is this: when you and I are people that invest our money generously into the lives of others, it's true that there will be a group of individuals in heaven that will welcome us into God's abode because of the impact that we have in their lives. But at the end of the day, it's not about them. They merely become representatives of the fact that God is pleased. Do you see? I mean, that, 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 it seems to me at the end of the day, that's really, really what's happening. So Jesus says, look, if this lost guy can actually use money in a way that's beneficial as he looks to his future, how much more should we be looking to the future? How much more should we be investing our money in such a way that we say, God, what will further your kingdom? What will benefit others? What will show love to you? That's what he's saying. And so what he does in verses 10 to 13 is he kind of qualifies everything because he doesn't want you to misunderstand why he's using this parable. So he makes two very, very strong pass, uh, statements. And, 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 and folks, I'll explain what this one thing means, but I have to tell you, in specifics in eternity, I have no idea what it's going to look like. But I'll tell you what it, well, at least what the passage says. Okay? I mean, I have ideas. Probably they're not worth a whole lot. 
Okay, so look at what he says in verses 10 to 11. Because as he's kind of qualifying what's being said here, Jesus is going to make this statement that my stewardship of money now is a prerequisite to my stewardship opportunities in the future. Look at what he says. Verse 10. One who is faithful in in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? saying a couple things here. Incidentally, I didn't mention this. Do you ever wonder why he calls it unrighteous wealth? Does that mean like if I pull a dollar bill out right now, you'd say that thing's filthy? Well, it probably is actually. But, <laughs> but you know, what people that tell you about bacteria, true on that point. But I mean, is there like something innately wicked and sinful about a dollar bill? No. You know what I think he's saying? When he uses the word unwealthy, I'm sorry, um, unrighteous wealth, What he means is this. Our wealth and our possessions, which frankly are gifts from God, aren't they? It's true. Have the propensity to corrupting us. That's the point. Nothing innately wrong in itself. But there's always that pull to corruption. You know, there's always that possibility that one day I see it all as a gift and the next day I see it as mine to use for me just the way it works. And so when he describes it, he describes it as possessions with the propensity, with the tendency toward corruption, if we're not very careful. But anyway, this is what he says in the passage. Um, And I was thinking about this. I haven't had this experience. With one of my sons, if he had money, he would love this, but he doesn't, which is probably better. Um, Your boy comes to you and says, I want my own car. Makes you a little bit nervous. He's only 16. And you're thinking, like, how's he going to handle this thing? And a much better approach is to say, let's see how you handle dad's car for a couple months or a year. And if you're driving it fast and trashing it, then I have little, little hope in what's going to happen by giving you your own thing at some point in the future. You know? And, And so in many ways, then dad's car becomes a test case, which is a scary thought in itself, actually. But you know what I mean? I mean, you know what I'm saying, okay? We've all been there. I, I, we had a great track record with kids and no accidents, and then we had two in six months. Anyway, that's all another story. But anyway, um, so, but, you know, it's just kind of the way it is. We understand, you know, if, 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 if I come and work for you and you're a banker, you're probably not going to make me in charge of the vault tomorrow. You know, you're going to say, hey, Doug, let's have you be a teller a little bit, because if you're, if you're stashing any money, it's better there than if you're moving around, you know, hundreds of thousands. You know, we just understand this. You start little and you go big, right? That's just the way it works. In this passage, and not only here, Luke 12, and not only here, Luke 19. And I don't know what this all means, but, but in those passages again and again, God says, you know what? The way you steward your possessions is indicative of who you are as a steward. And that has ramifications for the kinds of responsibilities that I will give you in glory. Now, that's what the text says. 
what does that mean? I mean, in, in chapter 19, he talks about one guy who was faithful this, and he says, you know, you're going to be in charge of 10 cities, and you're going to be charged. What in the world does that mean? Does it mean during the millennium, you know, we're going to have, I, I don't know. I mean, in eternity, like, am I going to be in charge of Mars and Jupiter? I don't know what at all. I mean, I have no idea what all that stuff is about. I, honestly, folks, I read this stuff, and I, I say to myself, I really wish one of the writers of Scripture would say, oh, by the way, let me tell you what this all entails. Because we're only trophies of grace, right? For all eternity, it's God's grace. And yet somehow in His grace, He chooses to grant responsibilities based on faithfulness now. And how that all works, I don't know. I, I honestly, I don't know. All I know is He says what He says. And He says, I want you to be my steward in all areas of life. And let's pick up on the one on money because that's a great indicator of who you really are. And in my grace, all my children get into heaven. That's not the issue. All my children are going to be enraptured in heaven. That's not the issue. But there apparently are levels of responsibility and rewards which I don't fully understand. We certainly know there's crowns. That's right. And what all this means, I don't know. But I do know this. What I do now affects that. That's what, I, I, that's what it says. He says one other thing. To qualify here in verse 13. Notice. No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. Not only does my present stewardship impact Eternity, because it does. It also indicates who I am. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I have tried several times in my life, more than I like to admit, to try to love God and money at the same time. But you know, there's only room for one person on the throne of your heart. Is this the way it works? And this text says, look, you will either put God at the center because that's what my people do. Eventually. I mean, we all struggle. But eventually, we just we can't live with ourselves unless God is there. It's just the way it works, right? You eventually get there. Where you just say, God, I want to worship you at the very core of my life. I, and so everything I do with money, it's because I love you. And, 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 and what you give me, you give me. And I want to be content with that. To God, it's you. Rather than... Life is about, as Wall Street says, and as Hollywood says, it's about the now stuff of life. And this text says, no, it's not that. Would you notice something? Look at the next verse, verse 14. It's a really interesting verse. Luke chapter 16. Let me flip back over there real quick. I was in another passage here. Um, look at the very next verse. Now the Pharisees who were what? Lovers of money. So these same guys in the last chapter that says, ew, why would you be around with those dirty, scummy, bummy sinners? Because they realize that we're all scummy, rotten sinners before God, and they then can be forgiven by God. And you don't. The fact that you love money means you need God every bit as much as them. But I would rather not deal with that and compare myself with others and think I'm better, Luke 15. When in reality, in their heart, 
They love themselves and they love something other than God. This then ushers us into that next parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's an interesting parable too, isn't it? And, and, and the parable's point isn't, look, if you're rich, you go to hell, and if you're poor, you go to heaven. That's not the point of the parable at all. The problem with the rich guy is that he hoarded and he loved money and he was insensitive to others. And the reason Lazarus got in wasn't because he was poor, it's because he was pious. Because his name, Lazarus, means God helps. That was his life. God is my helper. Not, life isn't working out real good, but I still stay with God. And in the afterlife, everything gets reversed. Beauty and rest for God's people and suffering for those that live for themselves. And what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees is, that's your end. You're like the rich guy. You may not be as rich as him, but you want to be rich like him. And that makes you just like him. And until you come to realize that the love of your life is something other than me, and that you're a sinner, I can't help you. You see? And that's how he reverses it in this passage. Stewardship of our possessions at the end of the day, folks, is all about the heart and what I really love. I want to just have, read one other passage to you and then I'll let you go. Would you come over, because it, it ends up picking up on the same kinds of themes. Come over to 1 Timothy chapter 6 for just a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul here is speaking. And he's going to be saying something very, very similar. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And here's what's interesting to me about 1 Timothy 6. Um, he's going to talk about two groups of people. The first group of people are the people that don't have very much. And the second group of people are those that have a lot. And you know, in any kind of congregation, isn't that what we have? We have some people we go around and you can say, look, I get by, but barely. And you get other people you could say, look, I've been good, God's blessed, gifted, etc., etc. I'm doing pretty well. Paul says, I have a word for both of you. And it's all about what you love. Whether you have or don't have, it's all about what you love at the end of the day. And so for those that don't have, look at what he says in verse, uh, verse 6. Godliness actually is a means of great gain. Having God loving him when accompanied by contentment. You know, because I don't have everything I would like, you know. We've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we should be content. But those who want to get rich, now notice, are they rich? No, 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 no. They want to get rich, you see? But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And I can't tell you how many times I've met with people who have gotten to the point in their life and they're saying, Doug, I'm not, but I'm going to be, and that's going to be the love of my life, and they move in that, destruct, that, 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 that arena, that avenue, and you check up with them a couple years later, and what you find is their lives are just messed up. Because it's an empty cistern, isn't it? It never ultimately fulfills. For the love of money, not money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing 
for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But you flee from such things, verse 11. Verse 12, fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. You know what he says? All right, you don't have a lot. But you lay hold of what's most important, which is God. And you can then learn what it means to become content in your situation. And at the end of the day, you will rejoice that you love the way He asked you to. But look down at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to become conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. You know, you have an ability, you have money, you have power, you can tend to get cocky sometimes. It's the way it works, right? It says, look, don't do that because God should be the center of your life. But rather on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It is a gracious God that has given you those gifts to enjoy. It's God. Plain and simple, it's God. But I'll tell you what I want you to do. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future. Look at this. So that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It's the exact same thing, folks. If I don't have, I should lay hold of what is, what is true life. If I do have, I should lay hold of what is true life. And whether I have been given money or not given money, it doesn't matter. My love for God is central regardless. You know what I love about that? That means it works for all of us. Doesn't it? You say, Doug, I don't, I don't have much. Like, is there a word for God for me today? Yeah, love Him with all your heart. Doug, I got millions, man. Love God with all your heart. Do you see? Jesus speaks in this parable in Luke 16. He says, look, look. If this lousy, unrighteous manager who's just crooked can figure out, hey, hey, if you do this, it benefits here. How much more should we? God, how do I use it for your glory? Because I love you. And then in your grace, in a way that I can't understand, it's going to make some difference in eternity. And I, whatever, Lord, thank you, I, whatever. And we go on with life. This morning, um, we'd gotten a note from a woman in our church who had lost her husband a year ago on the 5th, the day before their wedding anniversary. It was like the 5th, yeah. And... Um, she does not have much money at all. Um, and we had the opportunity to minister with her. Wonderful woman. Young, young woman. <sighs> Wouldn't you know it? She put in there, she said, I just want to thank you and Sherry, you've been so gracious. She put in there, you know, $50 to go to Outback. And frankly, I was embarrassed. I told my wife, we should send this back. Or, you know, anonymously give her 50 bucks or something. She can't afford this. Like, what is this? You know what it was? It's a woman that loves God. Didn't have much. And I have to tell you, I'm embarrassed about it. I am. I'm thankful, but I'm embarrassed all at the same time. But I thought to myself, Doris loves God. She just gives to him 
and leaves the rest with him. I think it's a pretty good way to live. I just pray by his grace that I can live up to that kind of love. Let's pray.